for the week of February 12th, 2023. This is Showbiz Sandbox, episode 607, the podcast that brings you all the dirt on the newsmaking headlines around the entertainment world. In Los Angeles, I'm Jay Sperling Reich. And outside Lincoln Center, I'm Michael Giltz. It's up to you, new. Why are you outside? why, Why are you outside? Guga, Guga, Gustavo Dudamel is the new I have to say, I don't know, nobody here in L.A. calls him Guga, okay? (laughs) Gustavo Dudamel is the new artistic director of the New York Philharmonic. Bye-bye, L.A. I feel terrible. (laughs) But, well, it's not the first time. I mean, first of all, he's been here for nearly 20 years. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I think he was, he uh, started in 2003. So, he's been here for quite a while. He's had a great run. Uh, maybe it's time for something fresh and new, but he has had a big impact on LA. He's made a major, he's, he's been a major figure in the LA cultural scene for quite a while now and very successfully so. So I think you're right. It's not as some disastrous, like not like losing your top player to another team. It's, you know, it's okay. He's moving on. Now he's ready for his Zubin retirement. Mehta? Zubin Mehta, same thing. LA yep. first, you know, LA is always the launching pad for, you know, <laughs> All these people, including, I think, the, the New York Philharmonic, ironically, uh, actually took the, uh, the, the executive director as well from the L.A. Phil. So it makes sense. She hired him once. Now she's hiring him again. That's right. So it's not the death of L.A. culture. Far from it. Just proves how vibrant L.A. is, that you can have great talent that other major cities like New York want to latch onto. But it is the death of Chugoy the Dove, one of the key players in De La Soul. Uh, One of the three main players has died at 54. Uh, Sad news. Uh, On the bright side... It's been a good time for De La Soul. Their music is about to hit streaming in a week or two. Uh, the band was just included in a tribute to hip hop on the Grammys. Uh, so they've had their moment in the sun. They knew their music was coming out again. A new generation is going to discover them. So it's a happy time for De La Soul. So it's sad to lose Trugoy the Dove at 54. He's had health issues for years, apparently. In fact, only one of the members was able to perform at the Grammys during that hip hop uh, summit that they had. But Sad news, nonetheless. And I forgot to ask, is there an episode next week? Yes. Well, you never know with Sperling. Sperling's a world traveler. Uh, Berlin is taking place right now, the Berlin Film Festival. Uh, Have you ever been to Berlin? Many, 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 many. Like like 20-something years ago, yeah. Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, But you just haven't been back since. But you were at the Dine-In Summit, right? The Dine-In Cinema Summit in Dallas, Texas. Was it fun? How did it go? Apparently, family entertainment centers are the new black. Uh, You know, you want to go to a movie theater and be able to, you know, have a rope course and go bowling and play video games. And, you know, I I get it. But, you know, I'm a I'm a purist when it comes to that. Uh, But, uh, you know, the funny thing is, and I I said it in in, uh, the Sully Lloyd Junkie newsletter. People should subscribe to. Yeah. The marquee, uh, you know. One of the longtime managers at Movie Tavern in Bedford, uh, Texas, he was asked by the head of food and beverage, uh, hey, if you could have anything you want, anything at all, money's no object, anything to make your business better, what would it be? And he actually thought about it. And he, was, he eventually just said, more product, more movies, and more often and more consistently. Because the reality is, without movies, it doesn't matter what kind of food you're serving. That's right. And uh, that was a good newsletter. I enjoyed reading it. How do they subscribe to it? They go to celluloidjunkie.com and it's right off on the right hand uh, sidebar there. There's a little, uh, you can enter your email address and 
click subscribe. And no, we will not spam you. In fact, we can barely get the newsletter out once a week. So <laughs> I have to tell I have to tell you, um, I, uh, I I go to movie theaters and I see the stuff. I see the arcades. I rarely see them used. I mean, I'm sure they must have a purpose or they wouldn't keep doing them. But are even new ones adding them? Because I don't know. I see it's a long row of lonely machines. Every once in a while, I'll see one or two people. But it's not like they're filled with people pouring in quarters. So I, I don't see the point. So, okay. So here's, I, I now know this actually. Uh, so here's how the way this works. If you have a family entertainment center, so you're basically, you're, creating a space for movies for bowling for people to come and spend sometimes well, four or five hours i can understand more but yeah um if you have something like that like a dave and busters those games will make two to three hundred and fifty dollars a week depending on the games their freshness and how long it takes to play them and then that's your, it your, yes that's why you see you know these arcades like dave and busters that have like you know 70 games well, I've never seen a movie theater with that much stuff. I'm talking about I walk into a movie theater and there's a row of machines in one corner of the lobby. You know, they've got like 10, 12 machines. Yeah, those will about make a, about between 50 and $100 a, a week. Yeah, I've never seen, I've never seen an, a, a movie theater with a whole huge development where like you might just go for two hours and not even go to the movie. Nobody would ever go to these theaters that I'm thinking of just to play the arcade games. It's just not that of a draw. It's just like, okay, their movie's done 10 minutes early. Maybe they play for a few minutes until you leave. In general, I don't see the draw of that, but I'm sure you learn more about it and we'll tell them about it at uh, Celluloid Junkie. But what are you going to tell us about this week? Well, this week on Showbiz Sandbox, it's a battle for box office supremacy between director James Cameron and, wait, this is, I think there's a typo here. It's, it's a battle between director James Cameron and director James Cameron. Yeah, uh, maybe he's cloned what? himself. Oh, oh, wait, well, then maybe Disney is the king of the world. In fact, we'll talk about Bob Iger's fourth quarter results over at the Mouse House and what it means for the business. Also, a string of reboots caught our eye, and we have some final thoughts on the Grammy Awards. You know who never won an album of the year? You know? Uh, and I know Beyonce didn't this past, and everybody's upset. You know what? She's in good company. There's a whole string of people that have never won album of the year. On Inside Baseball, make sure you get a prime seat when listening to our podcast, because you know why? It's going to cost you 50% extra if you do that, more than the usual seats. But here's the good news. You'll hit the audio sweet spot, and it will be awesome because Michael will be in one ear. Hello. Me in another. Hello. Yeah, you'll, <laughs> you'll slowly be going insane in the middle. So, yes, we will be discussing AMC's decision to charge moviegoers a premium for the best seats in the house of course during big deal or big whoop we'll discuss some of the week's top headlines but first as always we turn it over to entertainment journalist extraordinaire michael gilts to fill us in on last week's box office here he comes from your left ear <laughs> and we're looking at box office around the world for the week ending February 12th. We have a link to ComScore in our show notes, and we pull information from everywhere that we can. And the number one movie around the world is The Wandering Earth 2. This movie and Hidden Blade in China are really going back and forth. Hidden, uh, uh, Not Hidden Blade. This and Full River Red in China are really yeah. going back and forth at the box office, so it's fascinating. Uh, but Wandering Earth is back on top this week. It made $44 million. It's had five 
$150 million worldwide. Full River Red, on the other hand, made $36 million, but it's at $623 million worldwide. So I think it's far enough ahead that The Wandering Earth 2 is not going to catch up unless something extraordinarily unusual happens. So those two big movies are part of the Chinese New Year box office. And there are other movies on the chart still making money. Hidden Blade. Now, this is the grossest for the last two weeks because we lost track of it last week. Nobody reported on it. In the last two weeks, it's grossed another $37 million. This is the World War II espionage film starring Tony Leung. It's now at $123 million worldwide. Uh, also making money in China is uh, Black Panther Wakanda Forever, which made another $12 million in China. Uh, Boonie Bears made another $14 million. That animated film, the ninth in the series, is now at $200 million worldwide. Deep Sea, a Chinese animated film, also made about $14 million. It's at $112 million worldwide. And um, I think that's it for all the Chinese movies that we have info on. So that's what's happening in China. And you think, oh, wow, the new year, they blew all their movies. They're going to be resting for a while. Hold on. Valentine's Day is just around the corner. We're recording on Monday. Tomorrow is Tuesday. Six new movies will be opening up in the Chinese market to capitalize on Valentine's Day. A lot of rom-coms, I can imagine. And uh, three more movies by the weekend, including Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania, whatever the hell that's called. So nine new movies will be opening up in the next five days in China, five or six days, roughly. So a lot of new movies piling into the market, even while The Wandering Earth 2 and Hidden Blade and, and Full River Red are making serious coin. I mean, you know, $44 million is nothing to sneeze at. So that's what's happening in China, and Hollywood is happy to see it. They're like, maybe we can make money in China again. At number two around the world, right below the wandering earth too, is Avatar, the way of water, another $40 million. That's at $2,214,000,000, and it's going to head-to-head with Titanic. They were tied here in North America, practically. Titanic made $22 million. That's still ahead as of like Sunday. That's at $2,217,000,000, million ahead, which means by today, Monday, Avatar, the way of water has passed it up. Basically, James Cameron has three of the four biggest films of all time, Avatar, Avatar The Way of Water, and Titanic, and two of them are in theaters right now. So that's pretty impressive. Puss in Boots, The Last Wish, that's still making really good money, $25 million worldwide. It's now past the $400 million mark. Magic Mike's Last Dance said, hey, maybe we can get the ladies to go to the movies while the Super Bowl's on. Well, it made about $19 million worldwide. It was a good idea, except for the fact they made a really bad movie, even by Magic Mike standards. Yeah. All right. Well, Knock you know, the- and, and, and to be honest, uh, they didn't want to release that film on more than 1,500 locations. And I think Monday of last week, they were, I think they finally relented and allowed the movie to go wider. Uh, but there were cinema operators that I were was talking to, they were really upset because they, they couldn't book this film. And of course, then they get the film and it's like, you have three days to market it. Good luck. Well, it was marketed nationally. It wasn't like... Yeah, but, you know, advanced sales, advanced, you know, yeah. all the, they couldn't... Well, you know, but it wasn't a movie that was going to make a lot of money anyway. It, had, it was late to the game, very bad reviews, bad word of mouth. It's just not, it's not a good movie by Magic Mike standards, you know? It's, it's a lot of, a lot of not the guys dancing in strip clubs to fancy choreographed routines, you know, it's semi-serious or whatever. Uh, so, you know, 
they were all excited because they thought it'd be another big winner. Not, not the case. But Knock at the Cabin is a winner. M. Night Shyamalan's new horror flick cost $20 million to make. It's now made just about $40 million. It made $16 million this week. It's at $37 million and counting. It will certainly triple its budget. Then we have our mystery movie. Asterix and Obelix, The Middle Kingdom. This is a French film. It's a big budget movie. It costs $70 million to make. It opened in a number of territories on February 1st and then more the 2nd and more on the 3rd. It was opening day was covered by the trades. We heard what money it was making and how it was tracking compared to the more recent Asterix movies and oh, how it was doing day two and three. And then suddenly silence, crickets. Nobody wanted to say anything. We know or believe as of February 5th, it has made about $13 million. So we have no idea what it's made in the past seven days. It's the eighth live action film in the series that we're hoping to launch a big new, you know, boost to the franchise. It's a $70 million film. But somehow they managed to squash all coverage of the grosses. Now, the trades reported those first day or two of grosses, why they've dropped the ball, even if the company wants to, you know, muffle the noise of a movie that's dropped off a cliff, the trades should be reporting that and saying, we got a big, big movie in France that's fallen flat on its face and it's not making any money. So I'm disappointed we haven't seen that in the trades or elsewhere. No single company should be able to squash bad movie results, no matter where it's open in the world, especially France. It's not like it's, uh, you know, in a country with a dictatorship, for God's sake. I don't know how you feel, but I'm annoyed by it. Yeah, I, you know, I, I know that uh, when it comes to France, they have very specific rules. They only report admissions, and they're not allowed to report box office, and they actually uh, go out of their way to prevent that. Right, so but we get reports on French films all the time and how they're doing and their weekly Yes, grosses. from U.S. companies. Well, so we get French the, films, too, even before they're U.S. But that's what well, we specialize in that. You must listen to our show occasionally. We talk about movies that are hits in France from French companies, movies that are in Germany. But here's the thing, I got to be honest with you, I only listen to the right ear, so I don't... <laughs> well, back in America, uh, we've got the older ears are, are perking up for 80 for Brady, Jane Fonda, Lily Tomlin, Rita Moreno, Sally Field, in a movie about these old women who love Tom Brady, or women of a certain age, I should say. It made about $12 million this week. It's at $25 million and counting. Not great reviews, but a genial group of actors and great talented people. Black Panther we talked about. Tom Hanks is dragging a man called Odo over the $100 million mark. And then here's another movie that we sort of didn't track. So it speaks to what Sperling just said and contradicts my opinion. Well, we know what's happening everywhere. No, we don't. In Germany, there is a new film called Die Drie Erbe des Drachen, which is the three investigators, heir of the dragon. If you're of a certain age like me, you know the three investigators, a series of novels uh, branded by Alfred Hitchcock. Alfred Hitchcock presents the three investigators, three boys, one chubby, one good looking, one smart, and they would investigate stuff. Instead of two, like the Hardy Boys, there were three of them. There were a series of books for a while. They sort of fell off the radar. Apparently, in Germany, they're a massive franchise. They continued the series with new adventures in German for decades now. It's just a really, really big property that looms large, like the Hardy Boys, I would guess, in Germany. And so this is the latest film. I think this is a new cast, but this is the latest film that they've done of the three investigators. After three weeks, it's only made about $8 million. But I'm disappointed that we didn't know about it when it opened and didn't hear about it. Because even a movie make $1 or $2 million should be on our radar. So if you know more about how much the three investigators cost, or you know more about where Asterix and Obelix is grossing right now, tell us. 
Yes, you can write to us, dirt at showbizsandbox.com. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. You can also call and leave us a voicemail. The number to call is 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. You can also follow us on Twitter, which Michael loves Twitter so much. I love uh, it. And our handle there is at Showbiz Sandbox. And we're also on Facebook, another one of uh, Michael's lovely social media <laughs> haunts. Uh, he, he uh, well, you can f- like our page, I suppose, not follow us. Uh, showbiz, uh, no, what is it? Facebook.com slash Showbiz Sandbox. You know, that's the problem I have when I try to, when I try to ad lib, you know, yeah, try to be never, funny. Yeah, never works. <laughs> well, back to the box office. Patan is an Indian film. Again, another movie that's a little hard to track. We have an adjustment to our total grosses. Right now, all we know is it's made about $116 million, which is lower than what we thought it had last week, even though we believe it made about another $7 million this week. So that's a little confusion. It might in part be translating currencies and lagging reports and stuff like that. But this is the big action film starring Shah Rukh Khan, his first film in five years. It's a solid hit. And the studio is already saying, we're going to make a Patan universe. It's like, oh, God. <laughs> just please make a sequel if you like. But it's not a universe just because you have one hit film. Uh, and slowing down at the box office, the first slam dunk, this Japanese animated basketball film, really doing well in South Korea, just on fire. It's now crossed the $100 million mark worldwide. And some Oscar hopefuls are still chugging along like the Banshees of Inishirin made another $4 million. It's now at $38 million and counting, though we have the sad news that co-producer James Flynn has died at the age of 57. He did Banshees and a lot of stuff on the Irish film board and in the Irish film industry. He was also involved in the TV series Vikings, which was a big hit, and the current spinoff Vikings Valhalla. So he has a movie on the charts an Oscar hopeful nominee for a lot of Oscars and sure to win, I think, at least one of them, I think, possibly. And he has a hit TV show on the streaming charts. So uh, a sad loss for us for James Flynn. But Disney had some losses as well. And we've got some news about what Bob Iger, how he sold himself to Wall Street. It wasn't great news, but it was better than expected, which is crazy in my mind. It's like, well, we lost $14 trillion, but you thought we'd lose $17 trillion. And everybody's like, yay, buy the stock. (laughs) Yeah, well, look, I mean, it's... uh Here's the thing. They're about to have 7,000 losses uh, and so they was, narrowed so their losses. They didn't have said they're about to fire 7,000 more employees. Yes. Yes. So talk um, to us about what he said and what happened. A lot of those people are in marketing because essentially what he's saying is, hey, we're making all this content, but no, it's costing too much money to make the content, number one. And then it's costing us a fortune to market it. So from now on, we're going to be marketing a specific show. So Mandalorian will market, uh, an Avengers movie will market, but we're not going to be marketing m- these, these massive campaigns for Disney plus people know they want to watch the Mandalorian. They're going to come to Disney plus they're fine. They so, had 7,000 people marketing Disney. No, plus no, no, alone. no, no, no. They had right. So I, I don't know what he's marketing. talking about. He's trying to claim we had too many broad based campaigns. This is the day, yes. a few days before at the Super Bowl, Disney had an ad saying 100 years of Disney. Thank you world for allowing us to tell stories, a massive branded thing covering all the parks and all their stuff. So why did they spend several million dollars on that ad? I wonder, maybe he wishes he hadn't. Uh, possibly. Yeah. Especially after, <laughs> after yeah, firing so. 7,000 people. Uh, right. So, you know, a lot of the numbers from the fourth quarter of, uh, 
of last year were already baked in by the time Iger got there. So well, he's not he's not responsible for these numbers. We know that. Right. He's just yeah, saying, yeah. here's where we're at and here's where we're going in the future. The big number, of course, was that they lost for the first time, they lost subscribers to Disney Plus. 2.4 million people dropped Disney Plus in total. Obviously, there's always churn, but now they have lost more people than they gained, and they have lost a total of 2.1 million subscribers. So now Disney Plus is down from its last quarterly report and now has 161.8 million subscribers worldwide disaster because they say disney plus is the future my god what's going wrong well you know i think there's just going to be churn right i mean that's going to happen quite a bit uh they'll lose some some you're not supposed to lose people though you're not supposed to lose people they lost people why did they lose subscribers for the first time ever uh they lost cricket they lost cricket in India. This is oh, solely yeah, okay. attributed to Hotstar in India, the Disney satellite service. They lost people because they subscribed to it solely to get access to cricket. They lost cricket. They said the budget is too much. It's not worth it to spend all this money just to lose money on cricket so we can have subscribers. They said financially it's better to not spend a hundred gazillion dollars on the rights to cricket in that market in that way um, for streaming. And we don't mind that we're going to lose a couple million people for this one-off thing. They still have access to cricket, I think, terrestrial in some other ways in India. There are still players in the cricket market, but they had one really big deal that's off Disney Plus Hotstar, and so people dropped it. But they knew that would happen, and they're okay with it because it costs too damn much money to secure the sporting rights. Well, and we also know that, uh, you know, not all subscribers are created equal, meaning they don't all pay the same amount so well no india has lower subscriber rates but once you've maxed out in north america the places to gain are people who are going to pay less than you know the full amount that you might pay in north america so lowering your amount per consumer is just a sign maybe you're bringing in more people in africa and asia and india not a bad thing india is part of asia i guess but but you know that's not a bad thing um so it's not that they didn't matter it's just the cost of keeping them there was a gazillion dollar cricket price tag that wasn't worth it they weren't bringing enough revenue to make that big price tag worth it they keep most of their subscribers and they don't have to pay for that and that ties into espn which bob Iger says it's not for sale but you know what maybe we're not going to do so many big pricey sports deals and we'll believe them and the other people as soon as they stop paying for them because <laughs> so far they all keep paying for them somebody's always ready to open their checkbook aren't they yes well and uh, well yeah look at uh you know, look at, you, look at the, YouTube TV with their Sunday ticket ad on the Super Bowl. Yeah. Um, here's the deal. Uh, right. Nelson Peltz was uh, an activist investor uh, that was coming after Disney mm-hmm. and specifically Iger to try and get a board seat. Uh, one of his big. What? He's a putz. Well, one of the things he wanted was uh, to spin off ESPN. Yeah, and genius, genius. Let's sell off one of your crown jewels. Genius. <laughs> so one of the things he, one of the things Iger did was he said, well, I'm making it a standalone business uh, unit. And one way to sell something off is to first kind of extract it from the company, make it a standalone business unit. And then if somebody comes along and wants to buy it, well, guess what? You don't have to untie all of these cords. It's already its own business unit. The other thing Iger did was he turned to all, all of these uh, business units and said, congratulations, you're now in charge of your P&L. 
uh, you know, that was, of course, under Chapik. They had this weird structure where there was like this, everybody made their content and then somebody, did, you know, Kareem Daniels would sit there and go, hey, wh who, where should this go? Should it go on streaming? Should it go in theater? Should it go on television? And nobody was responsible for whether the, whatever they made. Well, well one person was. One person was. Who, and who, uh, I'm interested to know. I have a feeling I know who you're going to say. Who, who well, was Kareem Daniel? It was the guy that he put in charge of it. Oh, yes. They, they okay. all wanted okay. control over their own areas. The TV, ABC wanted control. Disney Plus wanted control. The movies wanted control. Having one guy decide, all right, you've made a movie. Now I'll decide it should go theatrical. It should go Disney Plus. It's not a smart way. You decide that in advance when you're making the thing, of course, at the beginning. But And you didn't have one person in charge of everything except the head of the company, I guess. But yeah, so he's restructured right. the whole corporation. He said one third is entertainment, one third is parks. And by the way, parks are driving our revenue right now. Theme parks are doing great. And one third is ESPN. Yeah, so he's restructured and, uh, again two minutes after Chapek structured it anew. Right. I think in a way this is like revenge. <laughs> it's like he's coming back. Or, like, you, or you think they made a mistake. Oh, he, he, he has said in no uncertain terms, this was bad. This was not good. In fact, that's the reason that, you know, JPEG got booted was all of a sudden you had Iger in the background going, well, man, they really screwed up over there. Uh, and they went, okay, well, you come back and fix it. And he said, right. don't mind if I do. Right. So that's not revenge. That's saying this was a bad corporate move for various reasons. And, you know, the decision should be. There should be more people with a voice in you know, what they're doing and why. If you want someone to run a division, they should also be in charge of the vision for that division, you know, under certain limitations, of course. But, you know, having everybody have to report some new guy, you know, and make things and then decide where it goes was a little chaotic. Nobody quite understood because it seemed like nobody had the power to greenlight anything. But they do have the power to greenlight stuff at the parks. Avatar Experience is coming to Disneyland. They've had an Avatar land in Disney World. The second movie has come out and it's one of the biggest of all time. So like, hmm, maybe our bet on Avatar was a safe one. No matter what, we would have had a nature-themed park ride, which should be enduring. But now we know two movies in, people are not getting all Matrix on us and saying, oh, this sucks. We don't care anymore. So they feel good about that. They also feel good about movies. They announce sequels to everything. Toy Story. Ugh. Frozen. Ugh. Zootopia. The only one of those three that makes sense. You should make a sequel to Zootopia. But They're making another Toy Story sequel? Yes. Well, they've announced it. They've announced it to investors. It doesn't mean it will happen. I hope it doesn't because they really were pushing it with number four. Uh, they do not need to make another Toy Story movie. Uh, it's just like, it's desperation and it's not good. It just weakens the value of the Toy Story movies you already have in my mind. There's no reason they, to make another one. No, there really isn't. You might... I mean, the Buzz Lightyear spinoff is different. That was, you know, a whole new thing. That was fine to try. It didn't work creatively, perhaps. But I feel like that's not like making a direct Toy Story sequel. But, oy. Zootopia, at least it's a crime, crime movie. You investigate a new crime. It's logical the way they should have made a Tarzan sequel for theaters many years ago. But they didn't. They went straight to video. But they are making sequels because Bob Iger believes in theatrical. He said theatrical windows are really, really important. Now, two minutes ago, when he was not the head of Disney, Bob Iger said, yeah, linear TV and theatrical going off a cliff, pretty much. That's the past. So is right. he being hypocritical here? Has he had a change of heart? Or is he just telling Wall Street what they want to hear for the short term? Both. I think he's... <laughs> I think he knows that linear television isn't going to go any away for anytime soon, but it is weakened. 
Okay. I think uh, theatrical, he realizes it's not going to go away anytime soon, but it's got to kind of earn its place these days. But well, well, right no, now, but we disagree. Yeah, I don't know, but we disagree strongly with that. Put, put out the movies. We made $9 billion last year at the box office. Guess what? We put out just about the number of films it takes to reach $9 billion. If they'd had the same schedule that they had slate of movies as they had in 2019, we might have hit $11 billion, right? Um, was it $9 so, billion last year? Or eight plus billion, whatever it was, the number of movies we released was like, yep, there you go. That's about the percentage of movies that we released in 2019 to reach that level. That's how it works. Release more movies all the time, you'll make more money. But we know that content matters. There hasn't been enough content. And if you scale that back up, there's every reason to believe box office in North America will get back to where it was. Yeah, well, that's correct. That's, yes. that's what Especially we believe. Especially if you start charging for seats the way, oh, wait. That's no, later. that's later, that's later, that's later, that's later. And they keep making sequels and all that sort of stuff. And a couple of reboots did catch our ear or eye. King of the Hill, a great animated series, that's being rebooted with the original voice cast. Frasier is being rebooted. That's filming right now. And we finally figured out what it is. It's not bringing the gang back together. He's going to go back to Boston, where Cheers was. And part of the cast will be his son, Freddie, his nephew, a college buddy turned professor, and others. So uh, James Burroughs is directing the pilot. They're not complete idiots. But I think that was smart in terms of like not trying to redo the magic that they had with Frasier. And that show, of course, went on a little bit too long. Then you have the Faulty Towers revival with John Cleese. Um, he's going to have a daughter. The character Basso Faulty will have a daughter he never knew he had. And they're going to try and open up a hotel. Surely he should have learned his lesson by now. He will not get good reviews on, on Yelp or wherever you review hotels. I'm sure of that. But he promises it will not be an anti-woke rant. Let's hope he keeps his word. Showtime. Just like the Patan people in India, they're like, we're going to have a Dexter universe. We're going to have a Billions yeah, universe. Like, really? Ugh. Two Dexter spinoffs are planned and four spinoffs of the TV show Billions. I think they're out of their mind. They're just, you know. And then La La Land. By, by the way, by the way, 7.5 mm -hmm. billion in 2022. Thank you very much. That's, that's and we know that the number of movies released was about what would gate the percentage of the total yeah. box office of 2019. Well, there you go. Whatever seven yeah. point whatever is from 11 billion. Well, that's that's what we got. That's how many movies you put out. If you put out more movies, we could have hit our total. And La La Land, the Oscar winning musical, though not best picture winner, uh, that is being turned into a Broadway musical. Well, good luck with that. I do think King of the Hill works because it's the original voice cast and it's, an, it's a cartoon. You can do it. And Frasier works because they're not trying to repeat themselves. It's a fresh cast. It's a fresh setting. It's a fresh idea with that character. He worked in Cheers. He worked in Frasier. And he could work in this setting too. I mean, it ain't easy. They're starting from scratch. Good luck. You know, I'm not excited by it. I'd rather something fresh and new, but at least they're not trying to say, well, what can we do again with Niles and Daphne and everybody else? So I think that's the right call. As much as I love those other actors, and John Mahoney, of course, is dead, but I love them. I'm sure they will guest star and, and pop in or whatever. But I think if you're going to try and do it, yeah, okay. You think there's life in that character with some new way? Okay. Faulty Towers, however, oi. <laughs> what about that 90s show? Well, I haven't watched it, but that doesn't, you know, the kids, it's the kids of the kids, right? Right. Yeah. So, yeah, whatever. I mean, in general, we're not excited by sequels and spinoffs and all that stuff, but it works enough of the time that, you know, we, and you know why they do it. They've been doing it since time began. 
Oh, you like that King <laughs> Arthur story? I got another one for you. <laughs> I, what do you like- think of... Uh- what did you think of the uh, Indiana Jones, speaking of sequels, the Indiana Jones trailer during the Super Bowl? Oh, jumping ahead. Uh, it's a shorter one. The longer one I kind of liked. He's like, oh, I'm an old man. You know, he cracks the whip and then everybody else pulls out a gun. You're like, okay. You know, those callbacks go, a little bit of that goes a long way. I'm rooting for them. It's James Mangold, right? I'm rooting for him. I'm rooting for Harrison Ford. So we'll have to see. But, you know. Since the second one, I haven't been excited by an Indiana Jones movie. So, you know, okay, I hope so. I, I thought the TV series was actually quite good. Very different beast, but, you know. And River Phoenix would have been a great indie. But those things happened. Uh, it was a film that could have easily won Best Picture in its day. We'll get to that later. But speaking of awards, what happened over at the Brit Awards? That's the big British Music Awards. It's like the Grammys. Well, they, they, got a, they, they said, you know, Best Female vocal, best male vocal, uh, you're fired. We're going to um, just have best vocal. Right, they went gender-free. Yes. And then their big award is not best album. It's really the best artist of the year. That's their most coveted award. And it turned out the top nominees this year were all men. And then it was won by Harry Styles. So, by the way, he performed as it was, and there was no turntable. He just did it. (laughs) You're like, yeah, that's the way to go. So he dedicated when he won his big award to all the female British artists of this current year. And let's keep, keep in mind, last year was genderless, and Adele won last year. And this year, the female duo Wet Leg, terrific band on my best albums of the year list, they won best new artist and best British group. So you're not limited to just men, it's on you to make sure you have a diverse slate of people. But saying best female person, you know, it's like, you know, we don't have best female director. We don't have best female screenwriter. We don't have best, we shouldn't have best, you know, our female R&B album. We should have just best R&B album and let everybody, you know, fight it out. And in the London Theater Awards, we also had another example of that. The What's On Stage Awards, one level below the Olivier's, but a prestigious UK Theatre Award, they too embrace gender-neutral awards in the acting categories, like every other category. Again, we've never had best female director, best male choreographer, or anything like that. So acting is just catching up to what we've done in every other category. It's not best female play. It's not best male musical. So acting is just doing what we've done in every other category, saying there's no reason to make gender distinctions. And the result was that all four acting awards were won by women. So it's going to depend on the year sometimes. Let's not yell that the roof has fallen. And it doesn't mean you're going to have diversity. It's like, that's on you. But, you know, forcing people to just have gendered categories to force yourself to give an award to somebody isn't really the where we're at right these days. And you know what? I've got the IRA Awards, my annual movie awards. We have embraced gender-free acting categories. I'm very happy about that. So starting this year, it'll just be Best Actor, Best Actress, Best Supporting Actor, Best Supporting Actress. I mean, no, Best Actor and Best Supporting Actor. There won't be gendered categories. It'll just be Best Lead, Best Supporting. So I'm very happy about that. Are you, are you happy uh, about the, the Grammy Awards? I know we covered well, it last week. Happened, but. We did, but you know, we did at the night of. I felt like we did sort of a sloppy job because we didn't have a chance to catch our breath. We didn't have the ratings. We didn't have a, a, a ability to do some fact-checking or see all the different awards. What happened with the ratings? They're up, right? Yeah, I think it's, uh, best the best uh, ratings since 2020, which was actually, I thought the 2020 awards uh, were quite good. And then, of course, they did 2021 uh, 
kind of remotely. Uh, and it was like 12 million people watched. This year, this year, right. This so year. it was like, right, it went up to 12 million people again, but in 2020 it was 18 million people, which is not a, a really big Grammy number anyway. So it's like 30, 40% below what it was in 2020. So yeah, it improved over the Zoom years of the Grammys, but that's not saying a lot. So it's still pretty way down. But there you go. Uh, Trevor Noah I thought was okay, but I wish the Grammys would stop telling us what an exciting performance we're about to see or what a great performance we just saw. <laughs> you know, And the fans, all that stuff where they're like, oh, it's about the fans. It's not about the fans. It's never about the fans. Please, Oscars, Grammys, Tonys, Emmys. It's not about the audience. We don't tune in to see ourselves. We tune in to see the stars. <laughs> and when you do tributes to teachers and record execs, do it as you're fading out to the commercial, not in the middle of the show. But hey, if you want to win a Grammy, just if you like, you want to win a, a, a an Eisner Award in the comic book world, come on, Showbiz Sandbox, right? Yeah, because, you know, Frank Marshall, I mean, the guy had nothing going on at all. <laughs> Producer Frank Marshall. Well, that was a... It, well, maybe I'll make this little movie about Jazz Fest and it's a documentary about uh, New Orleans Jazz Fest. And we were like, you're going to go places, kid. He, he also said, uh, who are you calling kid? Kid. <laughs> uh, but he then won a Grammy. He won the Grammy for Best Music Film for Jazz Fest, A New Orleans Story. He was a guest on our show, just like we had Eisner Award winner on our show. And you know what? That was an underdog win. That was not expected for him to win. Uh, and we rarely have artists on our show, so our winning track record is pretty darn high. And yeah, speaking of winners, that is true. Kim Petras won for the first out trans artist to win a Grammy. That's because Wendy Carlos was not out as trans, if that's the proper term, when winning for Switched on Bach back in nineteen uh, in the in the in the late sixties. They came out in nineteen seventy nine as uh, transgender. Uh, so that was a, a cool little bit of history there. Uh, they were transgender at the time, but they were not public about it. They still were marketing their music under a male name and that sort of stuff. And looking at the awards. No artist dominated the big three, which I like because song and record of the year are very different and they usually should be different awards. And album of the year, when all three go to the same person, it's kind of boring. Some years, of course, it's justified. But in general, we like to see them spread the awards around. And you know what? The Grammys have treated hip hop poorly for decades. It's been 50 years now. And it's not about winning, but it's about how they treat them and showcase them. The 50-year showcase was a first step in the right direction. They had every hip-hop artist imaginable that they could get on the stage. But you know what? Drake and The Weeknd still are not involved in the Grammys. Uh, they're making amends here. It's a start. They would have loved to cap it with a win for Beyonce, but it just wasn't meant to be. And do the Grammys treat Beyonce poorly? She's the most lauded artist of all time, but she's never won uh, album of the year or record of the year. And that's true. And that Grammys are old. They are fuddy-duddies. They're stuck in the past. That's their whole purpose. You know why the Grammys were formed? Because they couldn't believe rock and roll was happening and they wanted to make sure real music got, got the awards and got some attention. Like, oh my God, these upstarts. We got to make sure Frank Sinatra and Ello win awards, not these kids. And the Grammys were designed to be a bulwark against the future. They've always been stodgy. They've always been white. They've always been stuck in the past. It's not good. They need to change it. But when you know that history, it's not quite so shocking. So yeah, Beyonce feels slighted a little bit. She really shouldn't. She has won one of the big three. Her song, Single Ladies, put a ring on it. One song of the year. Well-deserved. A great song. And guess what? 
Bruce Springsteen, he's only won one of the big three. Song of the Year for his worst song, Streets of Philadelphia. Sting won one of the big three when he was in the police for Every Breath You Take. Green Day's only won one of the big three, Record of the Year for Boulevard of Broken Dreams. Mariah Carey only won Best New Artist. That's the only Grammy she's, you know, of the big three or four that she's won. A gazillion other acts can say this much the same thing. Diana Ross and Bjork have never won any competitive Grammy. The big three are album of the year, record of the year, and song of the year. These people have been nominated, but they've never won. Joni Mitchell, James Taylor, Linda Ronstadt, Elton John, David Bowie, Prince, Tom Petty, R.E.M., Pearl Jam, Madonna, Radiohead, Donna Summer. These people have never even been nominated. Johnny Cash, Aretha Franklin, Led Zeppelin, Van Morrison, Willie Nelson. This was a really easy list to put together. It's not remotely comprehensive. Every name I grabbed was like, oh, nope, they haven't done it either. It, was re- it took me about five minutes. I could have kept going on, but Sperling would shoot me. But yes, the <laughs> Grammys have slighted Beyonce. Uh, you know, she should have won for Lemonade in terms of that. But you know what? People make a living off of saying people who should have won the Oscars and didn't, should have won a Tony and didn't, should have won a Grammy. Yes, they're backwards. Yes, they're too white. Yes, they're stodgy. Yes, they can't handle hip hop. But she's in very, very good company. She certainly shouldn't feel like, oh my God, I'm so, it's like, you know what? (laughs) You might want to rub elbows with those people rather than some of the winners. Speaking of rubbing elbows with people or maybe not rubbing elbows with people, somebody who's not rubbing elbows with a lot of people these days is Justin Roiland uh, from Rick and Morty. That's right. He was dumped from the Rick and Morty show and all his other properties, basically, after two felony charges of domestic violence came about from the police. So those are very serious charges, though we said at the time, yeah, this is very serious. We don't know how they should handle it, but just dumping people immediately. Let the the legal, (laughs) let, let, let the law take, you know, let it play out. Let the justice system work. But it could take two years, and meanwhile, they've got shows sure. to create, and he has the voice work on shows, so it's not easy, but just treating him as guilty before proven guilty in a court of law doesn't feel fair when it's one, you know, one person making charge, serious enough for the police to step. But we were kind of like, oh, I, all of this is unpleasant. That's what we said. But it turns out, as we're not surprised, there's a lot, lot more going on here that we didn't really know about. Turns out there are a lot of stories about him, and he's been a problem hiding in plain sight. Hollywood Reporter had a very big in-depth story. We linked to it in our show notes. It's very good. Apparently, Cartoon Network did a formal investigation in 2020 of his workplace conduct. There was an allegation of sexual harassment. That occurred, oh, what a surprise, the first year women joined the writer's room on Rick and Morty. Uh, women posted online interactions they've had with Royland that are really disturbing and creepy, including one from an editor at Mad Magazine who loved him and was working on a tribute issue to Rick and Morty. So, you know, a fan. Uh, if the studio that dumped him had larger cases to make, they should have made it when firing him. And more interestingly, we learn how little they may be risking. You think, oh my God, one of the co-creators of Rick and Morty. It's a huge franchise. Turns out he does do the lead work, the lead voices on Rick and Morty and voice work on the other shows he's involved in creatively per The Holly Reporter. That's about it for the last few years. Now, they quoted people involved and they said that's the only involvement he has creatively on the shows he's working on right now. He was key in the first two seasons of Rick and Morty and is credited with creating other shows. But a lot of former colleagues say, I haven't heard from him in years. And when they have, it's been unpleasant. 
He hasn't been on speaking terms with co-creator Dan Harmon from Rick and Morty for many years. They say, The Hollywood Reporter, that a substantial number of staffers on Rick and Morty and his other shows say they've never even met him, even on Zoom. On the other hand, they all want to distance themselves from him, and they want to distance their shows from him because they love their shows, they're working on them, and they don't want to be associated with this guy if he's creepy. So a little bit of it is like, okay, yeah, they dumped him. Maybe they're not as you know risking as much as we thought because he's only doing the voices. On the other hand, to say he's not creatively involved because he's only doing the two lead voices on Rick and Morty, somebody tell the cast members of The Simpsons that they're not creatively involved and see what an earful you get. So they're trying to have it a both ways a little bit here, but finding out about all these other allegations make you understand better why they acted as quickly as they did. And there is a price to be paid when you act on this stuff. So let's recognize the risk they're taking. Changing the voices on Rick and Morty is no small step. Adidas dumped its contract with Yee, a.k.a. Kanye West. They had a $1.8 billion loss this quarter or this year, I forget which, and they're attributing, perhaps because that's helpful to them, a significant amount of that to losing the contract with Yee. So there's a lot of money at stake. So maybe they're doing the right thing. Maybe it's easier than we thought. Maybe everybody wants to distance themselves from him. But knowing that he hasn't spoken to Dan Harmon, that he hasn't been involved except doing voice work for many years, puts it in a different light. I, I don't know. Are, 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 you don't are need you to make a segue. To... You don't need to segue, baby. It's okay. Just say it. All Just right, say fine. it. Fine. <laughs> it's time for Big Deal or Big Whoop. Our increasingly small section. <laughs> Lately, it just hasn't been a lot of Big Deal or Big Whoops. Yeah, and you know, actually, um, there is so much award stuff that to scroll down through our show notes to get to the Big Deal or Big Whoop. By the way, Big Deal or Big Whoop for those who are just joining us, uh, that's our weekly segment where we discuss the top headlines on entertainment and tell you whether they're really important or just overhyped nonsense. Uh, there's so much awards news to scroll down to it. It takes like, it's like 35 pages and I wish I was joking <laughs> around. Well, our Sorry. first story certainly was all, uh, you know, all the all the notifications I was getting on my phone over the past week were about this because you need to like make sure the older straight white men in your life are sitting down when you tell them this. Okay, the let me get a chair. Let me get a chair. All right, I'm okay. seated. Okay, well, the hit TV series Yellowstone. Oh, wait, I'm, I'm not straight. Oh, okay. Uh, you, you <laughs> I'll are, stand I up always again. said you were crooked. Uh, <laughs> the, the hit TV series Yellowstone may be coming to an end. What? Kevin Cost yeah, well, Kevin Costner has this this big, massive two-part feature film epic western called Horizon on his plate. He negotiated a shorter schedule, probably a smart idea, but now he reportedly wants to make that even shorter. He wants a shortened workload on the hit, hit drama, even even uh, even though he's already negotiated it, like what? I think he only had a few episodes. Well, instead of messing with the show's plots or radically overhauling it, creator Taylor Sheridan plans to spin off a new contemporary drama with Matthew McConaughey as the patriarch in charge. The prequel series 1883 and 1923, they've done well, with 1923 getting a second and final season. Other limited series exploring the 1940s and the 1960s, they're also in the works. So the Duttons aren't going anywhere anytime soon. But Costner, he may be. Big deal or big whoop. And I guess I should watch this show. That's all I'm saying. 
Well, it's a primetime soap. If you watch Dallas, you can watch this. It's a big it's a big deal because it's a big franchise. And yes, they have this other stuff, but clearly the contemporary show Yellowstone is driving the train. You know, uh, the 1883 was a one-off. 1923 is going to have just one more batch of episodes. So this is where it's all happening. And they might just bring in Matthew McConaughey into the mix and have that and have him be in Yellowstone rather than make it a whole new name to series. It's not clear what's going to go on. It's a shame to see it you know, end in this way. It's been a really great career revival commercially for Kevin Costner. Uh, so that's cool. So it's a shame if they can't all, you know, be on good terms as they come to an end. And in terms of corporate, of course, they're like, we want to keep this baby going for as long as possible. But you know what? I mean, they've had lots of plot twists, lots of things, multiple assassination attempts. He's, he's, isn't he governor right now? So <laughs> maybe it's come to its natural end in terms of this character and it will be healthier for the show to move on from him. When you look back at Upstairs, Downstairs, or one of my favorite shows of all time, or MASH, or the Mary Tyler Moore show, those shows are among the best of all time because they got new characters in there. And it's so hard to do, and hard to do well, but when you do it, it gives the show a whole new life. When you're stuck with the same people, it's really hard to keep it fresh. This could be the best thing that happens to Yellowstone. Other than maybe, uh, you know, climate change reversing and then they won't have to worry about, oh, you're talking about the show, not the park, right? Not the yes. national park? Okay. Yes, I am. Keep going. Um, okay. Well, the Super Bowl happened. Big deal. Or no. Just <laughs> That's about um, it. There was yeah, some there football. Was, yeah. yeah. But more importantly, we saw a lot of movie trailers and celebrities Woo-hoo! pushing products, you know, Fast and Furious. Uh, my... Nearly 18-year-old daughter looked at that and said, they just threw everything at the, you know, everything in that. She watched the commercial and watched the trailer. She said, it makes no sense other than the fact that they know it's the last one. They just put everything in. Uh, and, Tell her, uh, you know, last but, one, honey? Not if it makes a honey. Young lady, fast, not if it makes a billion dollars. <laughs> right. Uh, the Flash. So there was a trailer for The Flash. Uh, ben Affleck was around, uh, you know, doing his Dunkin' Donut commercial. Steve Martin and Ben Stiller were hawking Pepsi. 80s pop songs were used for TurboTax. And of course, the halftime show starring Rihanna and her baby bump. Now, I'm not going to lie. I was at a Super Bowl party. I watched the Rihanna halftime show. I didn't realize she was pregnant. I got to say, like, I just thought she really? was moving. I thought, wow, oh, she's not the really second moving season, My brother's like, is she pregnant? And I hadn't watched. I'm like, oh yeah, she's definitely pregnant. At least I would imagine. And of course they confirmed it before the end of the game. Yeah. Well, uh, so is any of this a big deal or a big whoop? Uh, well, it's a big whoop in the scheme of things. I actually thought there were a few commercials that worked. It doesn't work as well if you watch them all because then they just sort of blend together. But if you watch the ones that people say, oh, that's a good one you maybe get a better vibe for it. You're not overwhelmed by the 47,000 commercials. Uh, I noticed a few things that there were more commercials that were new in the second half of the game. Those are cheaper and it really paid off for them because this game was a, you know, nail biter up to the end. So it wasn't a blowout where nobody's watching anymore. So those people made a smart move there. But I I will say uh, two things. One, there were a lot of movie flashbacks, not just the trailers. We had commercials that mimicked Caddyshack, Any Given Sunday, Clueless. My God, was she de-aged? Alicia Silverstone looked great. Um, Grease, Donnie Darko, I think, and on and on and on. And then we had we had uh, uh, flashbacks to music. Spandau Ballet and Men Without Hats were in the TurboTax ads. So there was a lot going on there. U2 has a new act in Vegas. That's okay. It was a buzz- I did not understand it at all. 
I had no idea what was it. That's how old I am. There was this floating sphere and then Octung baby. And that was it. I'm like, well, what was that? <laughs> what the hell was that about? But there you go. Um, there were a few ads I actually enjoyed. It's been a while since that's happened, but I didn't watch them all and I didn't sit there for five hours to do it. Was there an ad you liked especially? Well, I was at a Super Bowl party, and to be honest, I couldn't hear half the game. So, and not because I wasn't listening, but because people were talking. There's a huge difference when the LA Rams are playing in a Super Bowl and you're in Los Angeles watching it versus when the Kansas City Chiefs and Philadelphia Eagles are in, in a Super Bowl and you're in Los Angeles and nobody could care less. Like, it was like by the end, it was just me and four other people watching the game. Well, Jesus had a lot of ads, so I think he's trending on social media. I really liked the Workday ad. This was an ad for, I'm not even sure what, for HR people, but it had real rock stars mocking people in business who call each other rock stars. They're like, Joan Jett's like, you're not a rock star. Billy Idol's like, you're not a rock star. Stop saying rock star. I, I actually, it's it's nails on a chalk bar when somebody says, oh, you're a rock star. It drives me nuts. I have a sibling who does it. I'm like, oh, it's just really. So I found that very satisfying. And I have to say, of all the ads, I felt like the Dunkin' Donut ads worked great. You know why? Ben Affleck, even if you don't know that he's a big Dunkin' Donuts fan and he's seen going in and out of Dunkin' Donuts all the time, He's a working man persona still somehow, and that worked. Him working the drive-thru of Dunkin' Donuts. Yes, people were excited to see Ben Affleck, but that wasn't the point of the ad, so it didn't get obnoxious, and it felt low-key, real. J-Lo made an appearance at the end, had a funny button at the end. Get me a glazed. And it reminded you of Dunkin' Donuts. I liked the ad, and I remembered what the ad was for. There right. were other ads that were fine, but I have no idea what they're selling. And that what, ad did, for Dunkin' Donuts. Did you like the whole T-Mobile ad with, uh, you know, Scrubs and John Travolta? That was fine, though. Yeah, it was fine. And, and it actually, it emphasized again and again the, uh, what they were selling, lower price internet from T-Mobile. So that right. came through, you know. Uh, there's a lot of goodwill for those two actors from Scrubs and John Travolta in Greece. So, you know, it played a, somebody said, oh, it's a tribute to, it's like, no, 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 no. It was not a tribute to Olivia Newton-John, for God's sake. Don't try and twist this ad into something it's not. Uh, but, you know, it's sad that she's gone. But yeah, I thought it was perfectly fine. And again, that did work for that ad. Farmer's dog, I don't know what that is. It's dog food, I guess. But that was all about a dog. A lot of dogs this year. Flag football was a great ad. Promoting women in sports. A nice shout out from Billie Jean King. So that's more than usual. And really, the Dunkin' Donuts ad, I know what the ad is for. I remember the ad. It's selling the product. And if I'm an advertiser, that's what I really want. But did you watch uh, the uh, Rihanna concert? What did you think? I thought, uh, you know, it was, it looked stunning. Just, the, yeah. you know, she, she was her alone. No, no guest artist showed up. Uh, she came down floating, uh, floated down from the ceiling. I mean, it just with all of these different platforms got kind of going up and down. And, uh, you know, she had this like catwalk and, and uh, like 500 backup dancers. Uh, and that I thought it looked, you know, they were all in white and kind of. She was in uh, red. And she was in red. Uh, apparently she was pregnant. I didn't know. Uh, and yes, she, you know, for portions of it, she was lip syncing and didn't care whether anybody knew about it, which, you know, these you days. Always, people always do the halftime show. Yeah. Right. It's not it's, because it's, it's live. It's, it's live because show. it's the halftime. It's not because it's live. It's because they're in a football stadium. They have to set up the stage in 30 seconds. They're running around and dancing usually, though she was not. And it's really hard to do that. Uh, put on a good show in that context. If you have 
all day to prepare the audio system and stuff. But when you got to do it in 30 seconds, it's just really, you know. Yeah. Could you imagine like Coachella or like, yeah, let's, let's just use Coachella as an example. It's like, okay, uh, let's do sound check. Okay. Now remove everything, take it all away. Now bring it all back in 30 seconds and then just start singing live. And then take it away again in 30 seconds after that. And you're not the important yeah. thing here. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So exactly. yeah, it's, it's not because it's live. It's because it's the Super Bowl. So, you know, greatest Super Bowl performance of all time, Whitney Houston, lip synced, get over it. And <laughs> I really I thought, like people singing live, you know? Yeah. And I thought, uh, you know, for what it was worth, it, it, it was visually striking. Yeah, I thought it was stunning. I thought it just looked elegant. It was a simple idea, carried through perfectly, and made a, a positive of her not having to move much. I'm not a big Rihanna fan. I, I've never even listened to an entire album of hers. I don't know why, but I haven't. I certainly know some of the hits. But I thought it just was really, really well staged and shot. The camera was perfect. All the camera work, they knew what they were doing from beginning to end. It was visually worked really well. Even if you don't care, I thought you would sit at home and go, well, that looks kind of cool. You know, there's all these people on stages floating through the stadium and it looked cool for the people in the stadium, I imagine. It looked cool at home. They switched it up. You know, here's the long angle while she walks along the runway. I just thought it was really nicely, smartly done and a great reboot from all the years of like 47 special guests and 50 costume changes and it feels so frantic. This just felt like, here I am, baby. I'm going to do it. I'm done. You know, so she was selling a T-shirt before the show, which is sold out called on the T-shirt. It says Rihanna concert interrupted by a football game. Weird, but whatever. <laughs> and I thought, damn right. <laughs> but my final question is, we had the movie trailers, Guardian of the Galaxy 3, Fast and Furious, Creed 3, The Flash and numerous others. I saw The Flash trailer and I thought, you know what? People are saying they love the movie. It's really good. You can see why they're like, please, Ezra Miller, don't screw this up for us. You can see why they are holding this and doing everything they can to make this a commercial release because it was a strong trailer and looks like an interesting, emotional, solid comic book movie. Yeah. Uh, I will say this. I did have toward the, especially toward the end of the game when nobody was paying attention. The well, best of course, we all were paying attention. It was the, it was an exciting game. I actually watched the oh, live. I mean, where I was. About? Where I all was. All right. Well, there. Okay. But I had the best seat front and center, you know, <laughs> best viewing distance. Uh, you know, I could actually that hear That must finally. mean it's time for Inside Baseball, where we analyze some of the headlines that have the entertainment industry buzzing. We'll explain what they mean for the business and more importantly, how they affect you. And if you go to the movies or you work in exhibition or you're a ticket seller, it will affect you because people will be angry or they'll be excited. <laughs> Probably not. But you were talking about this story because AMC is going to charge more for the best seats in the house. They're going to have a discount for the front two rows that nobody ever wants to sit in. If you're an A-list member like me, I don't know if it's for the free A-list members. I think you actually have to pay 20 bucks a month, but they can reserve seats for no extra fee, which means after they've gone to 10 movies in a month, they'll break even. Yay! <laughs> That's not really going to drive people to the A-list membership. But anyway, they are going to charge a premium extra charge if you're sitting in those sweet spots in the center rows where you have the best view of the movie, which is a radical change for what movies have done for a century now. The Verge headline, a headline in The Verge, captured it well. AMC is about to make paying for theater seats more like booking an airline ticket. And who doesn't Oh, and love that's that? a lot of fun. I can't wait Big. to book my next airline ticket. Oh, actually, I'm going to do it right after I book my next Taylor Swift ticket. 
<laughs> right. So this is, does this encourage more movie going as we're trying to get no. people back into the movie going habit? No, it's the worst possible move at the worst possible time. Uh, you know, here's the thing. So they tried to liken it to, and that, can, do you want me to read this site line at AMC more closely aligned? No, to AMC no, no. Pricing. It's all BS. Okay. They're, they're talking about other entertainment venues, like, I don't know, stadiums, arenas, or a Broadway, you know, Broadway theater. But what I would say is, and I did say in my piece on uh, Celluloid Junkie is, you know what? That, you cannot compare those two things for nope. a number of reasons. The first is when you are going to a concert, you want to be close to the action. You want to like, you know, high five Harry Styles or like, you know, you know, shake the boss's hand or, you know, be close to Taylor Swift. You don't want to be in the back row where nobody can they tell. Tiny. <laughs> yeah. Where it could be me on stage for all you know. It probably is me on stage. Uh, so, so that's number one. Number two, no matter what, even if it's a, a play or a musical, if you're seeing Hamilton, yes, the show is the same the next night. But no, it's it, not. No, it's not at all. Every no. show is a little bit different. And, and you so, want to be really close because you can see their faces. There's no screens. So you pay more to be close. We're in a movie theater. You have a really big screen. Almost every seat is good. At least right. that's what they've told us for 100 years. You're going to have great seats no matter where you are. And they do. You have nice recliners. You have good vision. You have good sound. You have good sight lines for everybody. That's been what they've told us for 100 years. But now, if you want the best seats in the house, it's not enough to say, okay, I'll buy my ticket really early, you know, as soon as they're available, because I know I want to have a that good seat. Or I'll say, well, I'll go on a Wednesday rather than a Friday because I want those seats and they're already sold on the weekend. Now, you also have to pay a premium. So it's not enough to plan in advance. It's not enough to say, well, I'll go on a different night. You're going to, you know, unless it's a discount night like Tuesday, you're going to pay a premium to have a decent seat. Yeah, I don't like, I, I mean, I just, I, I just think it's, uh, it, now, it we've just had a, turns me off. It really turns me off. We have the LA Times' Ryan Fonder. He has a different perspective. He says, film Twitter people are predictably annoyed about this change, to which you might say, ever been to a concert or football game? To which I'd say, yeah, and it's miserable, and we're having congressional hearings about the ticketing at concerts, and people are outraged about the ticketing at concerts, and a lot of people don't even try to go to big shows anymore because it's such a nightmare. Though, on the other hand, they're still making a lot of money going to concerts, and if people are willing to pay, but you're really, you don't want to turn movie going into a premium once-a-year experience like going to an Elton John concert, because most people don't go to big, expensive concerts, you know, four, six times a year, the way you want them to go to a movie. How the reporter said, hey, out of the habit of going to the movies, well, we'll charge you more for decent seats. Enjoy. <laughs> yeah, well, I'll say this. You know, the, uh, you, what you really don't want them going to say is, uh, hey, uh, you know where the best seat in the house is? It's like right in my living room. Yeah, yeah. Now, the, th the fact is, I usually don't sit in those center seats because I like to be away from people. I like to look over people's heads and there's good seats everywhere. So I'm going to sit in the back few rows because I like that. Uh, but people who want to sit in those center seats, are they going to have to sit farther back even if the center seats are empty because you have assigned seating? And so they're like, oh, they're empty. And I feel like I can't sit there because someone might show up and I had to pay more to sit here. And then you're going to have to have policing to make sure everybody sits where they're supposed to sit even more than you do right now. So it's just uh, right now when you're desperately trying to get people to come back, saying, we're going to charge you more. Oh, great. Really, it seems awful, an awful idea. Yeah, uh, I, I liked what, uh, you know, the radio show, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me? Mm-hmm. 
Uh, so they, you know, they have comedians as their, their, it's kind of like a, a comedy game show on the radio. Yeah. And when this subject came up, one of them said, uh, you know, it seems like they were in the board meeting and they said, how can we, how can we get to the bankruptcy faster? <laughs> right. How can we really annoy people quickly? Yes, it's a, it's, a, it's a curious idea, but it's not the death of cinema. We'll still go to movies, even if they tack on these prices. But uh, yeah, I'm not going to be buying them. I'm, I'm going to be, I'm annoyed. You know, I'm annoyed. I've, I, like, uh, you had a great rundown of all the different responses. Like Elijah Wood, the actor, tweeted, he's like, Movie going is this big democratization. Everybody's equal in a theater. We've all got a seat. You show up early. You get in line. You can get a good seat. You know, that whole idea, you used to be able to get in line. Now you just got to buy your ticket early and you get a good seat. They will counter, of course. Well, you know what? You pay more for IMAX. You pay more for 3D. You pay more on a Friday night than you do on a discount Tuesday. You pay more evening than matinees. What's the big deal about paying more for the center seats? I just, yeah, it's, uh, it just makes no sense. I think they, they talk about the first two rows. And if you've been to a movie, nobody sits in those first two rows. I don't know why they put seats there. The answer is not to say there'll be $2 less. The answer is to rip them out and say, nobody should have these crappy, crappy seats where they hurt their neck watching the movie. It was a mistake to put those ridiculous rows there and they should just be gone because nobody should be allowed to sit there to see a movie because they're going to have a terrible time. And those rows are pointless. They are almost always empty. Always. Even big crowded yeah, movies, nobody sits in those seats. So to say, well, we'll discount them. Like it's, but you're going to charge more. It's like, no, those shouldn't even be in the theater. No, you should not offer seats that suck. It's like in a Broadway show where they have partial view. It's like, you actually shouldn't sell partial view. <laughs> that's like, actually, no, there's a pillar in your way. You shouldn't sell them. Just say, well, I guess that's not an actual seat. But we'll have to see. You it's know, you mentioned the death of, the death of cinema. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. I know you always have a string of people at the end of each show who, uh, well, they're not going to be listening to our next episode or even this episode because they are no longer with us, including Burt Bacharach this week, who died at the age of 94. Were you a big fan? You, you've already killed off set designer Eugene Lee, haven't you? You're like, we don't have time. <laughs> oh, no, I just, I, I just happen oh. to have it up on screen. Oh, I'm absolutely a big fan of Burt Bacharach, of course, in New York City. I had a ton of albums, and whenever I didn't have something, people were, oh, you've never heard that? I'm like, well, there's always so much more to listen to. For my birthday, my then friend Anthony gave me a copy of the Dionne Warwick collection, her all-time greatest hits, a rhino compilation on CD. I'd never listened to Dionne Warwick. He was shocked that I didn't have it in my collection. It's still one of my favorite albums of all time, and it's, of course, from that prime period when she was collaborating with Burt Bacharach and Hal David, Do You Know the Way to San Jose, um, Say a Little Prayer, A House is Not a Home, and a thousand other great, great hits. So I fell in love with her. I fell in love with their really sophisticated arrangements. They were the cool hepcats of the 60s. They weren't the rock and rollers. They were the sophisticates, the jet set. And he was married to Angie Dickinson and he was promoting Martini and Rossi on the television and churning out hits. They had Oscars. They had Grammys. They, he had Emmys. Uh, he had a Tony nomination for the show Promises, Promises based on the movie The Apartment. And then... They did a musical version of Lost Horizons for director Frank Capra. It was an epic flop, and everything fell apart. Burt Bacharach has said later in his biography it was his fault. 
and he thinks about all the songs he could have written with Hal David, and it makes him sad. They did get back together again towards the end of their lives. He collaborated with lots of other people, with Elvis Costello, great music, uh, you know, did, did lots of good stuff with his future wife. I mean, Carol Bayer. So, you know, he had a great career, and everyone sang his music from Perry Como to the White Stripes. And it's just a, a great body of work. So, you know, he even did the theme from Arthur, one of my favorite films of all time. You know, the when you're caught between the moon and New York City, he did the music for that. Hey, look, so, I know uh, it's crazy, but it is true. <laughs> and like Beyonce and many others, he only won one of the big three. Best song for 1987's AIDS charity single, That's What Friends Are For. And also Diane what, what is set to <laughs> well, therefore, support and love. Uh, oh, okay. Set designer Eugene Lee died at 83. He worked on film, TV, and theater throughout his career. He helped found Trinity Rep in Providence, Rhode Island. I uh, know a lot of people who live there or go there on vacation. He was its resident set designer from 1967 to um, today, his death. <laughs> for like, oh, wow. For like, yeah, he did it for decades. He won multiple Tonys for Wicked, for Sweeney Todd, the original with Angela Lansbury, the original Ragtime, Showboat, which was a great show in the 90s that I saw and loved. And you, Sperling, have definitely seen his work because he joined Saturday Night Live as a set designer in its original season. And he worked on the show, again, right up to his death. He was the longest-serving member of the SNL team because even Lorne Michaels left and came back. So that's pretty cool. Well, uh, you know, I was a little surprised to hear that H Howard Bragman died at the age of 66. He uh, was a big publicist in Hollywood, uh, represented a lot of people who were coming out as gay, uh, and, and he was really good in a crisis. That's right. Uh, kind of Monica Lewinsky. Monica yeah. Lewinsky, you call Howard Bragman. Meredith Baxter of Family Ties coming out. NFL hopeful Michael Sam, uh, country singer, whoever you are, if you're coming out, he was the guy you turned to because he would he would help you do it right. So he was a big finger. So was Oscar-winning director Hugh Hudson. He died at 86. He did TV commercials. He did all sorts of other stuff. And his big success, of course, was the underdog Oscar winner, Chariots of Fire. He, he made that baby happen. He brought his friend Vangelis on to the team. He said, hey, what if you do an electronic score? It was literally his idea. And that, of course, was a smash hit that uh, shocked everyone by winning Best Picture, beating out Atlantic City on Golden Pond, Reds, and Raiders of the Lost Ark. Can and you believe that? What a year. That's a good year. Um, uh, I would say uh, I would have, I, I might have voted for Chariots of Fire, though I'd have been very happy if Raiders had won as well. That would be probably yeah. my, my other choice. Though Reds is noble on Golden Pond, is mostly for the performances. And I like Atlantic City, but I don't love it like others, though Burt Lancaster gives a great performance. But yes, that was the Oscar winner that could really shock everybody. The Brits are coming, the Brits are coming, they said. And he never came close to matching that success. But his next film after that was Greystoke, The Legend of Tarzan, Lord of the Apes. Yes, that was a flop, but my God, that is a really good first half of the movie. That is the best Tarzan movie by a country mile till they go back to England. It's a really good film for that first half. They really nailed the origin story of Tarzan, did a great job. Oh, if only they'd stayed in the jungle, it would have been a masterpiece. And speaking of masterpieces, Spanish director Carlos Sara died at 91. 
I love him. I love him. He was part of history at Cannes in 1968. The people were storming the barricades, literally in Paris, storming the barricades. But Cannes was going on and Truffaut and Godard stormed the screening of one of his movies and said, you must stop and support the revolution. And he said, all right, I will make way for the revolution. And they stopped the screening of the movie and they stopped Cannes. So that's kind of cool. But he's had a lot of film success, especially movies with music movies rooted in opera and music, like a film version of Carmen and some of my favorite films of all time, Flamenco from 95, Tango from 98, Fados from 2007, and the very worthy sequel, Flamenco, Flamenco, in 2010. Flamenco is set on a soundstage. The cinematography is by Vittorio Storaro. It's just the world's greatest flamenco artists performing and dancing and singing. It begins what looks like dusk. It's lit to look like dust. They're on a soundstage and it heads through the night. And at the end of the movie, dawn is happening and you watch the greatest flamenco performers of all time gather together and dance and sing. I would rank it with stop making sense and jazz on a summer's day as one of the most beautiful, best concert films of all time. Sadly, it's not available to stream right now, though the sequel, which is quite good, is. But, oh my God, when I first saw that film at at the New York Film Festival, I just, I loved it so much. I'm sorry I never got to tell him what a great movie it is, but I'm sure he knew it. Well, you know, uh, like the Springsteen song, Atlantic City, everything Mm -hmm. that dies someday comes back. Absolutely. Uh, And our show will be back. <laughs> yeah, next week, in fact. Uh, but you won't want to miss it, so subscribe to us in iTunes, the Google Podcast Store, Microsoft Marketplace, Stitcher, Spotify, anywhere they give podcasts away for free. You can you can find us, and please do rate and review the show in any one of those podcast aggregators that allows you to do so. It helps us out when you do that. You can find that information on our website, showbizsandbox.com. That's where you'll find links to all of the stories we've discussed on today's episode, as well as ways to contact us. Dirt at showbizsandbox.com is our email address. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. You can also call and leave us a voicemail. The number to call is 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. We're on Twitter where our handle is at showbizsandbox. And we're also on Facebook, facebook.com slash showbizsandbox. Now, the music you hear at the beginning and end of each show is by the popular indie rock group MGMT. They can be found on their own website. Who is MGMT.com? Uh, and by the way, uh, I, I think MGMT announced they will be releasing new music and touring in 2023 after a four-year hiatus. Yes, yes, they did. I forgot to put, okay. did I put that in the notes? Yes, I believe you did. Oh, okay, uh, yes. I, I was very excited by that. You, now, Michael, you have, you can be found online every week, and every week you've got something new and exciting for us. What is it this week, Michael? This week, it's wendycarlos.com, the Grammy winner for Switched On Bach. Come on the show, Wendy. Uh, she's got a fascinating story to tell about the fact that her music has fallen into a black hole. You can't get it on streaming services right now. Uh, it's like a legal thing. It's just uh, great stuff like flamenco and switched on Bach falls through the cracks all the time. We love, she's hoping that things will change soon. And uh, maybe the, the win by Kim Petras has lit a fire under other people. Maybe we'll get to hear her music without going to YouTube and just playing illegal copies. So come on the show and talk to us about that. We'd love to have you. Well, if you can't find any of Michael's coverage of the entertainment industry there, why not head on over to michaelgiltz.com where all of his work is aggregated. Some of my work can be found on Celluloid Junkie. Until next week, play nice. <laughs>